Hello, and welcome back to Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry, Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I try to talk about what I see as the most important current issues in international finance and economics, while providing my own U.S. politics and policy angles on these different issues when it is relevant. On this week's Current Account, we are nearing the end of 2023, and so we're going to talk to my boss, the IAF President and CEO, Tim Adams, to give us his perspective on how the year is wrapping up, some major takeaways from 2023, and what he is looking forward to in 2024. So, Tim, thank you very much, of course, for being here. So let's just get into it. One of your jobs, whether you like it or not, is to travel around the world, talk to lots of people, whether there are board members, our member firms, policymakers, regulators, and probably just citizens. And think about like what is happening when you think about financial services and the financial world. So as 2023 has evolved, what have you found the most important issues in business and for the macroeconomic and financial landscape? Yeah, Clover, thanks for having me. I guess you invited me on either to provide some uh, all-encompassing, thoughtful wrap-up, or you just couldn't find anyone else to do it at the end of the year, but that's okay. No comment. Uh, look, it's been a fascinating year of travel. In fact, I just finished uh, around the world tour. I was in the UAE, uh, Singapore, Beijing, London, and Frankfurt. And you know that's part of what I do. I travel around the world meeting with officials and thought leaders and, and uh, the C-suites of our member firms and scoop up ideas and offer my thoughts and insights on how I see the world. And it makes my job incredibly interesting and stimulating. I love what I do. So that makes uh, all the travel tolerable. You know, this year has been a fascinating year because we started off with a set of ideas about what we were going to spend our time with. And then obviously the events in uh, March threw us a bit of a curveball with uh, Silicon Valley Bank and the market turmoil here in the United States and then also in Switzerland with Credit Suisse. You know, obviously the events from, from March that were unanticipated and have implications, by the way, with policymakers responded and are thinking through solutions, although solutions that I don't think are necessary. Given the idiosyncratic nature of Silicon Valley Bank, you know, it was a unique institution. It's an institution that we knew. You know, we spent a lot of time on the West Coast, so we had some interaction with them. But it was a colossal failure in terms of risk management and governance. I'd say it's always also a colossal failure in terms of appropriate supervision. You know, one institution or two institutions out of 4,400 across the U.S. is an isolated idiosyncratic event, and it was never systemic, although there were moments where it felt like it could be. But, you know, the system was incredibly resilient, and I think it tells us a lot about, you know, the strength of the system going forward. So I didn't anticipate that was going to be on my agenda. It became on my agenda. And, you know, there are a number of implications. One is that 13 years after the great financial crisis, the assumption was that we had resolved all potential individual and broader systemic risk. And what we reminded ourselves is that that's not the case, that there are always firms that kind of live at the edge of viable business models and take on too much risk. And when they're put in a stress situation, then they blow up. I think that's always going to be the case. You know, when you've got 20,000 banks globally, 4,400 in the United States, you're always going to have an institution or two that doesn't practice a good governance, and in this case, interest rate risk management. So we spent a lot of time in real time trying to understand what was going on with these institutions. And then, of course, the policymakers jumped into the breach asking hard questions. Do we need to revisit some of the topics that we had adjudicated, you know, over the previous 13 years, whether it's the LCR and how much liquidity we hold, 
assumptions about deposit flight, assumptions about and the risk of large percentage of non-insured deposits, interest rate risk on the banking book. How do we think about hold to maturity versus available for sale? So a whole host of issues we thought we would settled. We've been revisiting them this entire year. I think we're in a good spot, which I'm happy to talk about. So I didn't anticipate that, but there were issues that we did anticipate, which we've been very engaged on, and that's all things related to sustainability and climate, as well as the tech space, which has been incredibly exciting with respect to AI. We've just celebrated the one-year anniversary of the launch of ChatGBT. We've seen just in the last few days, Google come out with their version of the latest iteration of where the technology is going in terms of generative AI. It's remarkable what's happened in just the past year. So the technology space is incredibly dynamic and interesting and fun. The climate space is one we're going to be wrestling with for years to come, fraught with a lot of challenging politics. And then the banking sector itself, you know, obviously we represent institutions across the full financial intermediation spectrum, but the banking sector actually had a pretty good year in terms of margins, profits, and net interest margins were, were pretty solid. A lot of volatility, so trading in many instances was pretty solid. So the industry had a good year. We'll see how we navigate the challenges looking forward, and we'll be talking about that in a moment. All right. So, no, thank you. All right. So it was interesting because you basically talked a little bit into what I was going to do in my second question, but I have a follow-up, which is when you started the year on your bingo card, you didn't have Silicon Valley Bank and a number of other institutions, including Credit Suisse, which is an IIF member, getting into trouble and going down. But as you then said, like the resilience of the banking sector has been pretty impressive, given that the banking sector largely had a good year, despite these huge problems that occurred back in March and April. So maybe you can talk a little bit about, are there key areas you see where things are moving in the financial sector? You did mention artificial intelligence, so I'm going to kind of assume that, but you can kind of go a little further in depth that we should be thinking about going into 2024, but maybe picking up on some of the things you also saw in 2023. Yeah, you make a great point about the resiliency of the system. We just stress tested. We did a real live stress test first quarter this year, and the system writ large came through it you know, flying colors. It shows that the trillions of tier one equity capital that we've added to our balance sheets over the past 13 years, the trillions in high quality liquid assets, you know, the less leverage, the better risk management, the better approaches to operational risk and other components made a huge difference. This is a very different system than what was occurring and existed, you know, pre-financial crisis. So we should celebrate all the work that's been done. I think it unfortunately gave the bank bashers and there's those out there who dislike the industry, you know, they came out of the the shadows and the woodwork. We hadn't heard from many of them in, in seven or eight years to, you know, dust off their attacks and their criticism, but they didn't land a punch because the system, the industry has changed remarkably. While we were worrying at the time in March and April, how would we function through the year? We actually functioned quite well. So as officials have looked back, I think they've taken that into consideration that you don't need to fix the whole system. You just need to think about the idiosyncratic nature of the events that occurred, and those events are going to occur. But if there are systemic policy issues, then let's talk about them. I, I just don't see them. But, you know, that doesn't mean they won't be on the agenda. You know, going forward, well, you said bingo card. Uh, ChatGBT was not on my bingo card either, given that it really just launched at the end of 2022. And that has changed so uh, rapidly. As you know, we just we did our staff offsite this year, invited in one of the leading uh, AI firms. I just met this morning with another leading AI firm. My inbox is full of emails about what's going on in space 
from vendors, from think tanks, from authors. You know, I'm trying to read everything I can get my hands on. And I recommend a number of books to officials. I was in London last week and we talked a lot about the conference that was held at Bletchley in November 1st and 2nd. You know, this is real. Sure, there's hype there. There's hype in most technologies. But I do think this is where the internet was in 1994, 1993. This is transformative. And you throw in quantum computing and the sheer capacity of computational science, where we're going in terms of the capacity to crunch through a lot of data uh, and what that means for our encryption systems and communications. Those two things combined, I think, are transformative. So I didn't have that on my agenda. It's squarely on my agenda. And going into 2024, we're going to spend a lot of time in that area. Layered on top of some of the other tech issues, such as digital currencies and how we think about the underlying distributed ledger technology, blockchain technology. What does that mean? And there are a lot of different policymakers around the world that are trying to uh, put in place, you know, products and technologies such as central bank digital currencies in response to a number of perceived policy holes, policy challenges. So the tech space is going to be quite vibrant in 2024. Sustainability is going to continue to be with us. I think that's, you know, morphing into a different conversation. As you know, there's political backlash in some parts of the world, including in the U.S., where ESG has become a toxic uh, acronym. But other parts of the world where there's greater societal cohesion and the acceptance that there's a, a problem and the need for some sort of solution. So as we think about broader fragmentation, this is a topic in which there is fragmentation going forward and probably with implications for politics that we haven't fully appreciated. And then as we go into 2024, it's election year. You know, half the world's population, something like 65% of the world's GDP is going to the ballot box, starting with Taiwan on January 13th. And we already had some interesting elections in Argentina and in, in the Netherlands. But 2024, you've got elections in the EU and India and, and Mexico, the UK, the US. So sitting here a year from now, we should do this uh, again a year from now, if you'll have me back. I think we will have a lot of interesting political stories to tell. Uh, especially in terms of the U.S. You have some very binary outcomes that have enormous implications for policy, policy direction at a time when the advanced economies and in China face demographic and fiscal challenges that do not lend themselves to easy solutions. Well, I, I'll consider the idea of having you back. But the but in the meantime, let me think about, uh, I keep going a little bit on 2024. So we work with a lot of financial institutions, a lot of their job is to figure out what are the risks, what are the vulnerabilities out there, and how do you then manage them? Obviously, we have to do something similar. We have a different way of looking at it than a financial institution would here at IIF. What do you see as sort of those risks? You mentioned, I thought it was a really good point about all the different elections that are coming out there. What are some other vulnerabilities we have to think about? And, and you can go further on that. And how does that affect the overall economy? Because, you know, something I know you and I've talked about before, which is how do we get greater economic growth is going to be an important aspect for, I mean, yes, the United States, but for Europe and other regions around the world. But at the same time, they have to deal with all these different vulnerabilities. That's the great challenge, Clay. And you're spot on. My thematic lead for 2024 is really going for growth and the role that the financial sector plays in intermediating the trillions that we need for capital formation and investment drive productivity and rising living standards and higher levels of prosperity for, you know, working Americans, working Canadians, working, you know, Germans, Japanese, you name it. We have run up an enormous tab in terms of debt levels globally. Our widely read regular debt monitor tells a pretty harrowing story. 
$310 trillion and change in terms of nominal dollar size of debt, 335% of GDP, where it post-World War II historical highs. U.S. running a deficit of 7% of GDP, $2 trillion. Uh, and that's going to continue as far as we can see. So you've, you've got the advanced economies, including China, huge debt levels at all facets of the economy, government at all levels, households, corporates, sub-sovereigns, at a time when we've got enormous demographic challenges, we're all aging populations, and juxtapose that with the hostility towards immigration. The question is, where are we going to get workers and how's the workforce going to grow? So you know, many of the advanced economies, we've underinvested in key sectors over the past 20 years and the productivity numbers, which jump around a lot. I just looking at the numbers today from the last couple of quarters are all over the place. But we need to invest and we need to deal with our fiscal issues. We need to deal with the green transition. We need to deal with demographics. These are huge, huge topics. And unfortunately, they're not necessarily being discussed in a serious way by serious politicians. And we're going to have to address them one way or another because they're going to smack us in the head. And I think for us, our industry plays an important role. We're going to intermediate the capital needed for growth in terms of capital formation. We're going to help savers save, investors invest, and we're going to help with the green transition, even though that's politically charged in some sectors of the world. And we do this against the backdrop of greater fragmentation, greater regionalization, which makes it harder, harder in terms of data sharing, harder in terms of cross-border trade flows rise of protectionism, populism-generated isolationism. So a lot of isms there. So the politics have gotten harder. The problems have gotten harder. Some would say incredibly so, multi-generational challenges. But we as, the, as an industry are ready to go. You know, Our C-suites are locked and loaded. They want to play a positive leadership role. And I think we can do that. Okay. Actually, that's a good transition to my last question, which is, all right, that last question was really a question for me. Because as you know, Tim, I'm a little bit of a pessimist. And Tim, you know, you are more of an optimist. So let's get to a question for you, which is looking forward into 2024, give me some of your optimism. Where do you see some really positive things happening? You know, Clay, I I am an optimist. I always have been, unabashedly so. And that doesn't mean that we won't have some dark times and some great challenges. But, you know, unfortunately, We get caught up in the moment and we are subject to catastrophizing. It's the conceit of every generation to think the problems that we confront are unique to us in our time and place. And they're not. You know, for example, Norman Lear just died in the last few days at 101. One of the most profoundly important individuals in terms of the social dialogue in this country. When he wrote All in the Family, which when I was a kid was a really important milestone in television and in social commentary. It had a coverage of half the population would watch the show on a weekly basis, 120 million viewers, right? There weren't, you know, there, you didn't have TikTok or you didn't have podcasts or other things to, uh, to distract you. So every week, 120 million Americans tuned in to watch a show about social change and the challenges of social change represented by a variety of different views. I think that was historic and transformative. I think Norman Lear is one of the most important individuals in American culture. And I bring that to bear to think, you know, we've always faced challenges. We've faced crises, we've faced wars, we've faced conflict, but we always find a way through it. Our institutions are durable. There are individuals who innovate and innovate our way through with solutions. And, you know, you can just never underestimate the optimism of just the general population. They'll find ways to get up every morning and go to work and go to school and look for solutions. And I think despite these challenges, we will find, although they're they're hard to see now, 
leaders who will lead and we will have to make sacrifices. And we're not great about making sacrifices, but boy, previous generations did and we wouldn't be here today without them. So yeah, I'm an optimist. But if I get really depressed, I go out to the West Coast or I you know, surround myself with young innovators and I just their capacity to see what I can't see, to see the world in a new vision. You know, was it Marcel Proust that said, it's not about the journey to a new place. It's about seeing the same place with a new set of eyes. And I think you got to step back and, and say, you know, with some sense of awe and optimism that what we have in front of us is not static. We control our fate and we can reinvent the future. And I'm an innovation optimist. And I think with the right set of leaders, I think they will materialize that we'll find a solution to some of these challenges. I hate to admit it, but that was a fantastic answer. So thank you very much, Tim. I appreciate you joining us and actually giving us a really hopeful note as we go into what could be a tough year, but I actually think your overall optimism may overcome all the the It's the season of hope and joy, right? Thank you. And we need to stay grounded in that. 2024 is going to be a fabulous, fantastic, interesting year, just as this year was. There'll be surprise. You'll ask me next year at this point when you invite me back. Uh, what what happened that wasn't on our bingo card today. And there'll be some things that we never thought about, but it'll be fun. So I'm ready. Strap in. And for all our listeners, you know, get ready. Give us your thoughts, your questions, your concerns, and we're going to have a great time. Thank you very much. Well, now it's time for my three, two, one. That's my three main takeaways from my conversation with Tim Adams. Two things I'm looking forward to, and then my one sports fact. Here are my three main takeaways from my conversation with Tim. First, as Tim noted, there were banking issues in 2023 that surprised him, that surprised actually all of us. But in the end, while there was significant financial institutions that got into serious trouble and some of them are no longer, there was a lot of resilience from the overall system. Some of that was because of the idiosyncratic nature of some of those crises And some of that is from the resilience that's been built up by the financial sector over the last number of years after the global financial crisis back in 2008, 2009. Next, Tim was very clear there's still a lot going on in the area of technology and sustainability. Basically, two huge kind of trends in the financial sector that are continuing onward. There's a lot more to be done, but 2023 was full of interesting ideas and interesting innovations that we're going to see more of in 2024. And lastly, I thought Tim made a great point about stressing the importance of economic growth. It is something that a number of jurisdictions around the world are going to have to worry about. And the financial sector can play a big role in that. But also just the growth in 2023 has been probably from a global perspective slightly better than we might have expected but it's still not that great. And so what can we do to actually make it better going into 2024 and beyond? Two things that I'm looking forward to. The first is something that Tim noted that really he saw very clearly at the end of 2022, which is the rise of artificial intelligence and what that actually means. We've talked about this on earlier episodes of Current Account, but it's going to be something we're going to have to talk about a lot more going forward because things developed in 2023, but we have a long way to go going into 24, the use case and kind of how do we set the right guidelines on artificial intelligence. The second is just the very, very busy electoral season that Tim noted and basically all the geopolitical risks that could come with that or at least regional risks. That's going to start very early in the new year because on January 13th, there's going to be a fairly major election in Taiwan. 
And now for my one sports fact. This past week, in the British Premier League, which is the top tier in English soccer, and probably maybe the most important league in all of soccer globally, there was a team called Luton Town, which I had never heard of, that actually played against first place Arsenal, which I have heard of for many years. The game was tied 3-3 until an overtime goal from Arsenal beat Luton Town. But it was an important point. Where, who's Luton Town? Where did they come from? Well, it turns out Luton Town is a team with a very interesting stadium, by the way, if you've ever seen a video of their stadium, it's fascinating. They have spent most of their years in the 1980s and 1990s in leagues or divisions that were actually not even part of the Premier League system. Now, what is the Premier League system? So in British soccer, they have a pyramid scheme. Now, a pyramid scheme essentially means that they have your top league, that's the Premier League, but if they didn't do very well, they can be relegated down to the next division, which is actually interestingly known as the championship division which is actually, so that's considered the second division, even though it's actually known as the first division, which is also the championship division, which of course, as you can tell, is a little bit confusing to me on nomenclature, but let's not worry about that. This is very different than the United States, where basically at the professional level, teams are neither relegated nor brought up to the next league. So Luton Town actually over the last 10 years has moved from being not even in part of the Premier League divisions because there are there are four of them. They were in the one right below that. They have moved up steadily over that 10-year period and they are making their debut this year in the Premier League. Maybe just as impressively is their midfielder Peli Rudak Mpanzu who first joined Luton Town in 2013 when they were in the fifth tier. This is the tier that is below the national leagues. In fact, it's populated by people who are playing semi-pro ball. He has stuck with the team since that time. He is now 29 years old. He has been able to score a goal in each of the divisions moving all the way up to the Premier League. He hasn't scored one yet in the Premier League, but his goal is to be the first person to ever score a goal in each one of these divisions. Whatever may be the case, it is a pretty amazing story that this small team in a 10-year period is moving up and playing the powerhouses of Arsenal, Manchester City, Manchester United, and so on. So I don't know where Luton Town is, but go Luton Town. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode of Current Account. Obviously, I want to thank Tim Adams, my CEO and president, and my friend for doing such an amazing job. And as always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listener. We can be reached at podcast at IIF.com. All our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening and goodbye.